morning. Good to see you guys. Uh, my name is Ben, if you don't know who I am, and I get to share the word with you this morning. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and pull that out. You can open it up to Luke chapter 14. Uh, we're going to sort of jump around in chapters 14 and 15 today. Um, so if you've been around the last few weeks, you know that we're in this series called Won't You Be, Na- Won't you be My Neighbor, and it's all about Mr. Rogers. Not really. It's about, um, we're talking about, you know that command that Jesus gives us to love our neighbors as ourselves? It's about what that really looks like in everyday life how we can connect with our neighbors, how we can uh, serve and love them, and then ultimately how we can share our story of faith with them, maybe invite them into a first-time relationship with God or, or a deeper relationship with God. We're just talking about all the, uh, sort of the, the process of what it really looks like to live life with people and love them well. So uh, it, it's called our Bless series. You may have noticed a little card in your program looks something like this. We're going through this uh, process called bless. And uh, each letter in the word bless stands for something that we've been covering each week. And today we're on the letter E, which is for eat together. We're going to talk about eating today. You didn't know this, but you came to church to talk about food. Uh, Some of you are like, yes, and some of you are like, that's so weird. Um, So we're going to talk about eating today. We're going to talk about food, and it's something that we don't talk about very much. Some of you might be like, okay, are we going to talk about gluttony? Are we going to, is this a new spiritual diet? What's going on? Um, I think, as as I've been thinking about eating... On our relationship to food this week, uh, getting ready, which is something I, I will be honest with you, I don't normally think about. I don't normally think about food or eating. But I've been thinking about it a little bit this week and, and what our relationship to food is like in, in 2018 in Clackamas, Oregon. And I'm aware that many of us, myself included, have sort of a skewed or unhealthy or strained relationship to food, to eating. Some of us, uh, myself included, view eating uh, only as sort of a necessity, sort of grab something on the go, I eat to live. That's, all, that's the only reason food exists is so that I can just keep on going. Uh, some of us have an unhealthy relationship to food in that we're almost embarrassed about food. We're almost overly cautious. I know a lot of friends of mine who feel embarrassed eating in public. They don't want to eat around near other people uh, or, or maybe are, are um, almost obsessed with uh, being really cautious and careful about what they put in their body. Is that a good thing? Probably to be, to be cautious about what you put in your body, but, uh, but also it can become an obsession. You know, it can become, go almost too far. Uh, some of us have an unhealthy relationship to food in that we use it as almost um, a medicator. When we're stressed, when we're o- overworked, when we're tired, we think that the way to unwind, or, or really more deeply, the way to finally have peace in our souls at the end of a long and strenuous day or week is to sit down and just indulge, just eat, right? So some of us use food in that way. So it, I mean, for many of us, our relationship to eating, to food, kind of has these weird sort of little side angles to it that just are, are a little bit skewed a little bit weird. And we look in the Bible and we find out that actually if you look at, if you look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the story of Jesus, food is actually a central player in this story. And Jesus had a very specific way in which he, re, in which he related to eating, in which he related to food. And, uh, and I've noticed this a couple of years ago. A few years ago, I was on, um, on a trip, like a, a month-long trip and uh, I, was, I decided that during that trip, I was only going to read the book of Luke. I was in my daily devotions, I was just going to read Luke, and I was going to read it over and over and over. And what I discovered as I was reading it was that, um, you, you know that story about Jesus, it's in all the Gospels, where Jesus calls his disciples, he says, hey, you, fisherman, tax collector, whoever you are, you come follow me. And they do, they follow him for three years, and they live life with him, and they do the things he does, and he, he sort of invites them along for the ride. What I noticed was, 
when you look at the Gospels, Jesus says, you come follow me, and then he spends chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter sitting down at tables and eating with people. Have you noticed this? From, from the very beginning of his public ministry to the very end, even after he's resurrected and he's on the road to Emmaus at the end of the book of Luke, and he's, he reveals himself to the disciples, where does he reveal himself as the resurrected Christ? He reveals himself around the table when he breaks the bread, right? This, this eating together becomes sort of a theme throughout almost every single chapter in the gospel. It just comes up over and over and over. Jesus' rhythm is go to a place, talk to people, eat with them. Go to another place, talk to people, eat with them. Go to another place, talk to people, eat with them. There's so much eating going on, it's crazy. So Jesus is not only a guy who loves food, but a guy who uses food and eating together with people as part of his mission to bring the kingdom of God. That's something that I don't normally think about. When I think about eating or having a meal, I think about the function of it, right? Like, I'm going to do this so that I have energy to do the next things I need to do, but it's really about the other things I need to do. But for Jesus, eating together, gathering around a table was part of the work. It was part of the mission, and he wove it into everything he did. So I'm sure that the disciples, when they first got called, when Jesus said, come, follow me, I will make you fishers of men, and they thought, that sounds interesting. Maybe we're going to go save the world. And he's like, actually, we're going to have dinner first. And then tomorrow we're going to get up and we're going to have breakfast and then we're going to talk to some people and then I'm going to feed them all with like a few loaves and then we're going to have another meal and then we're going to, I'm sure they weren't thinking, I'm going to follow this man and we're just going to sit down and eat and eat all over the place. But that's what he does. He brings them and he, and he, and he teaches around the table so often. And this is a great, uh, uh, these, these two chapters, Luke 14 and 15, uh, are a great example of sort of two different ways in which Jesus or in which we can approach the table, in which we can come to the table. And Jesus sort of teaches us about how to come to the table, how to be on mission when we come to the table, but also why. Because when I think about that, I'm like, why, Jesus? Why all the food? Why, why, are, you, why are you eating all the time? Uh, and I think, is it just because you're like really hungry and you really like food? I don't know. Is it because you walked everywhere and you needed the energy? Maybe it was carbo-loading. I don't know. But he, uh, why does he like food so much? Why does he eat with people so much? Why is that such a part of his mission? He really explains that to us here, sort of the, the, the things going on under the surface of sharing a meal. He explains that in these chapters as well. So I want to jump right in. Chapter 14 in verse 1, it says this. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. So he's in the house of a prominent Pharisee. He's around a table. He is eating. And you can sort of imagine a big table. In those days, it would have been low to the ground. You would sit on cushions on the ground and all around the table. You can sort of imagine all the foods out there, and, and, and it's the Pharisees, but it's also the other like heads of state of that particular town. It's the very important people all gathered around the table, and they're all arranged specifically to know who's the most important, who's the least important, and they're all watching Jesus. They're watching Jesus, and they're asking him leading questions. How is he going to respond to this? How is he going to respond to that? Is he going to eat the food in the right order? Is, is, are, are, is he going to say anything offensive? They're, they're watching him very carefully to see who he's going to ally himself with and how he's going to behave. I, I was watching this, um, this Netflix show this week, and what, what you need to know about me is that if I, if I take the time to watch TV, which is not very often these days, um, I, I don't watch like the normal shows that it's like, oh, everybody, of course everybody watches that. I don't know why, but I don't gravitate towards those shows. I go like 20 minutes deep into the Netflix pile and find something that just speaks my name. And so I was watching, I, 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 have, I confessed to a couple of friends this week, and I'll confess to you that I watched a show this week that was actually called, it, this was its actual title, it was actually called Lords and Ladles. 
Lords and Ladles. I'm not proud of it, but I watched the show Lords and Ladles, and it's an Irish cooking show where, <laughs> for real, these Irish chefs go to these grand estate homes, and they, they cook meals that would have been served there in like the 1700s, like these, these big feasts. And, uh, and I, I'm like, I, I, don't wanna, I don't even want to tell you how many episodes I've watched. But it's, I, I'm deep into this show. And uh, this, this, this show, one of the things they talk about is how in those days, these feasts were not just about gathering with friends and eating food. These feasts were about making sure that everyone understood, first of all, the size of your wealth. So these meals were enormous, and lots of food was wasted. And it was all about opulence and showing how much you could afford. And then the, another thing it was about was, was sort of social gaming and, 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 and sort of figuring out the social hierarchy. So you would very specifically create your seating chart so so-and-so would talk to so-and-so, and this person wouldn't be with this person, but this person would be near the host, and, this, and all this kind of stuff, right? And then the hosts would ask very specific questions, right? Like, what do you think of our current political situation? And then watch, right? And listen very carefully. That's sort of what's going on here. Jesus is at this table, and everyone's watching and listening very closely to figure out what's going on and what he's going to say and whose side he's on and and, and who's most important in the town and is he going to be on their side or somebody else's side and controversy or is it going to go the way we expect, like all this kind of stuff. And they're watching him. And Jesus begins to tell them. He sees kind of what they're doing. He sort of sees the game they're playing. He starts to talk to them about honor. It's so interesting. He launches right into this thing. He says... Hey, uh, when you go to a feast, I know that you probably prefer, as sort of the, the very important people in this town, to sit in the place of honor. And you, you sort of elevate yourself at this feast. And you gather around the table as a way of showing you are important. So you sit at the, the right hand of the host or whatever. He says, instead, what if you thought about coming to the table as a humbling exercise? As an exercise in humbling yourself and maybe taking the lowest place, and then if someone chooses to move you to the, up, the, the highest place, you can. But maybe taking the lowest, like, least important place, maybe, maybe humbling yourself around this table and just humbly receiving whatever is offered from your host. What have you thought about it in those terms? And so everyone, everyone's sort of, sort of like, wait, what? what? This is not what we expected to talk about at all. We expected Jesus to play our social games, and here he is telling us that coming to the table is actually not about prowess and power and and position, but it's actually about humbling yourself and receiving humbly what the host has to offer. And then Jesus really like drives his point home. In verse 12, he says this, then Jesus said to his host, to his host, he said this, to the person hosting him. That's amazing. Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends your brothers or sisters, your, rel- your relatives, or your rich neighbors. Well, who else are you going to invite? Right? Why would, I, of course, if I'm going to go out to dinner, I'm going to invite my friends. Obviously, I'm going to invite my best friends. Because that's what, that's what eating is about. Or, or maybe I'll invite my family. I'll gather with my family, Thanksgiving and holiday meals. Of course I will. Absolutely. Who else am I going to invite? Or maybe your rich friends or your rich neighbors, it says. Basically, people you want to get in with. Why, it, it, maybe, maybe I'm going to eat with my friends and relatives, or maybe I'm, maybe I'm going to, to this meal or inviting this person over for networking purposes, right? I want them to hire me. I want them to like me. I want them to think I'm good. I want them to, to notice all this stuff about me so that maybe, you know, I can get something from them. He says, don't invite those people when you have a feast. Well, then what, what are we going to do instead? If you do, he says, they will invite you back, and you will ha- uh, you, so you will be repaid. Verse 13, but when you give a banquet, invite who? The poor, the crippled the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So Jesus says, 
when you give a meal, when you, go, when, you, when you gather on the table, don't just consider your friends or relatives or the people who can give you something, the people you're trying to network with. Consider the, the, the have-nots. Consider the poor, the crippled, the people who aren't normally invited to your feast. Consider those people. And if you invite them to your feast, guess what? You will be blessed. Jesus says that's what blessing looks like is serving those who need serving. And this response is really interesting to me. Verse 15, then one of those at the table with him heard this and he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. He's saying, wait, 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 wait. You say we're blessed if we do this other stuff, which implies that we're not already blessed. But excuse me, sir, we are blessed. Why? Because blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Here's what he's saying. They had this idea of this feast in the kingdom of God. This idea that, that the righteous and the people of God, the Israelite people who were righteous and obeyed God's laws and did the right sacrifices, when, that they would, in eternity, sit at the table of Abraham and feast at the feast of God. And these men sitting around the table with Jesus viewed themselves as those blessed ones. Those blessed ones who would sit at Abraham's right and his left and eat at the table in the feast of God, in the kingdom of God. And so he's saying, no, 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 we're already the blessed ones. Why? Because we're Israelite people. We're the religious leaders. We're the rulers and authorities of, of God's people. We live blameless lives. We're very righteous people. We're very pious people. We're very legalistically good people. Therefore, we will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And what's interesting here is Jesus doesn't, doesn't counter. He doesn't, he doesn't contradict that. Jesus said, this is what blessing looks like. And this guy goes, no, no, we're already blessed. But Jesus doesn't correct him. Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't correct them, him because I think for him, this statement is true, but it's true in a different way. This man is saying, blessed are we already just by being born Israelites. And just by being good enough, just by act, behaving good enough in this life, we are already blessed. We will sit down at the feast of Abraham and we will sit down at God's feast in the kingdom of God because we are the blessed ones. And Jesus then tells this story in reply that we're about to read to show that, yes, there is a feast in the kingdom of God. Yes, God does have a table overflowing with abundant blessings. And yes, the blessed ones are invited to it, but the blessed ones aren't exactly who you think they are. So Jesus hears this controversial statement and responds in verse 16. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. How would you how would you like that? How would you like that if you asked him a really controversial, controversial question or said something really like, here's what I think. I think you're wrong, Jesus. Here's what I think. And then he turned to you and said, once upon a time, right? Jesus does this all the time. He responds with a story. He says, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent out his servants to tell those who'd been invited, come for everything is now ready. And the guys are going, yeah, that's us right? The guys around the table with Jesus are going, yes, God has prepared a feast of blessings for his people, and God has invited us to partake because we are those that God has blessed. We are God's people, and we are the leaders, the rulers, the authorities of God's people. But then the next verse, verse 18, but they all, that is the people invited, all alike began to make excuses. The verse said, I have bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought uh, five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. So these guests make excuses. 
They say, oh, I'm too busy. I've got this land. I've got to go work. I've just got, to, got too much to do. I can't. Sorry, I can't come. And then one of them's like, oh, I got this, this yoke of oxen, which is like the first century equivalent to like a new convertible, right? Sorry, man. I've got to go drive this new thing. I've got to go try it out. It looks awesome. The other one says, oh, I got married, which is basically to say I have more important things to do, and I'm going to use this as an excuse not to connect with you, right? And so what Jesus is saying is those who were supposed to be invited, the children of Israel, the people of God, those who were supposed to be invited are too busy, too comfortable, and too distracted. They're too busy, too comfortable, and too distracted. And they are missing the feast. Think about this. These men are sitting at a table with Jesus the Messiah. They're sitting at a table with God incarnate. God in flesh has come. He is here to bring the kingdom of God in fullness and in power in their midst. And what do they do? Oh, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. I'm too busy. I'm too comfortable. Not too many nice distractions to really notice what's going on, and they miss him completely. They don't understand who he is. They think he's just another political leader, another, another who's who and that they can sort of uh, wine and dine and get on the good side and play the game that they've always been playing and tell me I'm good enough because I already know I'm good enough, but if you tell me I'm good enough, everyone will know I'm good enough. And so they're playing this game with Jesus and Jesus is saying, your games are missing the point. You think you have more important things to do than to come to this feast that I am offering you. And so they won't come. So what happens in verse 21? The servant came back and reported this to the master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, and the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out into the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. What the master does is say, I have this table full of good things, and those I invited are too distracted, too comfortable, too busy to come. They already feel full, so go invite the hungry. They've already been satisfied. Go invite those who are in need. They think that they lack nothing. So go invite those who know how deep they lack so that they can come and share in my feast. There is room for all these people at this feast. Why? Because they understand their need. They understand their hunger, their own emptiness. See, the guests, the guests that he had invited in the first place, they had other things to fill up the hole in their heart. They had work to do. That's something we use to fill up the hole, right? It doesn't ever work, but we try. They had enormous comfort, right? They, bought, they had five yoke of brand new oxen. Got to try them out, right? They had wealth. They had comfort. Lots of new devices, lots of new things, lots of new whatevers to try to fill that hole in their heart. They had new relationships. They had, what, they, they had, they, they had this marriage going on, right? This, this thing that was, that was a good thing, a good thing that ended up distracting them from the best thing. And so often we try to fill the hole in our heart with good things, but the only thing that can fill it is the best thing, is coming to the table of the master and receiving what he has for us. So he says, all right, my guests aren't hungry. Go invite those who are. My guests aren't hungry. 
Go invite the poor, the homeless, those who haven't eaten in five days, the people sitting on the side of the street who are just empty. And when you offer them a feast, they won't say, no, I'm good, thanks. They will say, yes, of course, I'm so hungry, please, I need that, please. And they will come and they will feast and be satisfied at the table. So Jesus tells this provocative, provocative story. It sort of shows how the way these guys are, are viewing coming, at the, coming to the table and viewing their own righteousness is not actually the way God sees it. God sees it differently. In fact, we're going to look, we're going to look at, skip over to chapter 15. We're going to see how God views it. Uh, th- this is uh, the beginning of chapter 15, and Jesus has gone to another town at this point, and it says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, those same guys he was eating with before, muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus is in this town, he's teaching, and the tax collectors and sinners show up. Tax collectors and sinners. Um, sinners was it just a very, it's very straightforward, it meant people who had sinned, but it also was a code word used for prostitutes at the time. Uh, tax collectors very simply meant people who collected taxes, but it was also a code word for traitor of the faith. Because the tax collectors were Jewish people who were in cahoots with the Roman occupying authorities and were, were, were charging these gouging taxes to the people of God on behalf of the Romans and then taking some off the top for themselves. They were considered traitors. So you might think like people who share your faith, other, other Christians who maybe are on the opposite side of the political spectrum from you, Sometimes it can feel like they let the side down, like they're, on, they're not on your side, they're not on your team, right? That's what these people felt like. That's, what, that's what, how people felt towards the tax collectors. So Jesus is sitting there, he's teaching, and the tax collectors and the sinners show up, and the Pharisees look and they say, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Because to eat with someone is to welcome them. Which is why when we're going to eat, when we're going to have a meal, cook a meal, or we're going to go out to eat, or we're going to have a coffee, we tend to do it with only our best friends. Because to be at a table with someone is to welcome them. What Jesus is trying to say to them is, listen, I didn't come to feed those who already are full or already think they're full. I came to feed those who are hungry. My table doesn't exist just for those who are already satisfied to come and just feel so sure of themselves and satisfied in their own righteousness. My table exists for those who need, know they have a need and they have come to have that need filled and Jesus' table is open. Anyone, regardless of their history, their past, their failures, their mess-ups, their way of thinking, everybody is welcome to come to Jesus' table, admit their need, admit their hunger, and find that hunger satisfied. So Jesus opens his table to the tax collectors and the sinners, and then these people say, oh, well, how, could, how dare he do that? And Jesus responds to them this way. I love this. Verse 3. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. What Jesus is saying is, you think, Pharisees and teachers of the law, You think that Abraham's table, the feast of God, is laid out for you. And you think it's laid out for you because you're so good. And you think 
that when all of you are living righteous lives and you feel you're, you're legalistically following the rules and you're looking down on everybody who's a sinner and you're, you're, you're good enough in and of yourself, you, you feel so proud, so conceited, to the point where you think heaven is standing there applauding, but in reality, your self-made righteousness does not evoke any celebration in heaven. In fact, you, you thinking you're good enough and have no need and have no lack, and you, you thinking that you're already blessed and don't need the blessing of God, you thinking that just keeps heaven silent. But when one person who has a past, or one person who struggles with failure, or when one person who just knows how badly they've screwed up comes to Jesus, admits their hunger and their need, and gets it satisfied at his table, when that happens, heaven erupts. It explodes with raucous celebration. What Jesus is saying is, if there's a celebratory feast to happen, it's going to happen for those who, are, who know that they're sinners and receive forgiveness. And that must have offended these people. That must have offended the Pharisees to no end, right? That must have just like, how dare you? How dare you? Because in their minds, yes, we are wealthy and we can put on these great feasts. Why? Because God likes us better. Yes, we are at the top of the social order and we are the leaders of our religious movement and our political movement. Why? Because God likes us better. But what Jesus is saying is that's not how the economy of God works. Man, so often... So often in our culture, I think we, we, we can fall into that way of thinking, right? Why do I have the wealth that I have? Because I worked hard and I earned it. Why am I able to feed myself and my family? Because I work hard and I get a paycheck and I go buy this food. We think of ourselves, here this is so important, we think of ourselves as our own providers, not only of physical needs, but often of spiritual needs as well. You guys know that uh, in April and May, I got to go walk 500 miles across Spain in this thing called the Camino de Santiago. I wasn't here for a couple months, but that's where I was. I wasn't just like sitting at home watching Lords and Ladles. Uh, but I, I walked across Spain on this thing called the Camino de Santiago, and something I noticed very quickly there was that when I had a need, I had to trust that God would provide it. Here's what I mean. When I'm at home, and I'm like hung, I'm driving, and I'm hungry, right? I'm just like, I'm like driving, oh man, I'm, I'm kind of, I pull off. I see a Starbucks, I pull off, drive into the Starbucks, park my car that is, that is run by gas that I paid for with my working job, and then I walk inside, I pull out my debit card, which is loaded with money that I worked for, that I got paid for my good work, and I, and I buy some coffee and a little snack, and I have met my need. I have provided for my own hunger. In the same way, if I'm, if I'm walking around my normal day life and I've, I've kind of been working by myself all day and I feel a little bit lonely, I, I, I pick up my cell phone and I text a friend to see if they want to hang out. And then they, they, they say, sure, sure, let's hang out. Let's go get dinner later. It sounds great. And we'll go hang out and I'll feel so much better and I will have provided for my own need and, and met my own hunger. When I was on the Camino... The, th that couldn't happen for me. Uh, on the Camino, you don't carry really any food with you. Every five to ten miles, you walk through a little village, and you'll have a meal at these little like rural villages, and uh, or or have a snack or whatever. And so uh, I would be walking, and I would just feel suddenly intensely hungry, and I would I would be like, okay, Lord, 
I don't know where the next village is. I'm in the middle of nowhere, Spain. I don't know where I'm going to eat some food, but I know that, that you know my needs. So I want to tell you I'm hungry. Please provide food. And some, something would happen. I would reach a village or someone would come along and offer me food or something would happen. The Lord would provide for that need. Likewise, if I was walking in the middle of nowhere, Spain by myself, I can't see anyone else around me, I would get an intense feeling of loneliness and isolation. And I'd say, okay, Lord, here's what I'm feeling. I need you to meet this need. And, and, and God would provide. Someone would come up and talk to me. And what happened was... When I recognized that I could not meet my own need and only God could meet my need, what happened was when he did, I was grateful. When I go buy a snack and a coffee at Starbucks, I'm not grateful. I'm like, good, that's taken care of. When I hang out with a friend, occasionally maybe I'll be grateful, but I'm like, man, I'm sure glad I texted that person today. When God, when you recognize who it is providing for your needs... You become grateful people, not self-righteous people who go, I deserve this anyway. You become grateful people when you recognize it's the master of the banquet inviting you in, even though you don't really deserve to be there. You become a grateful person. I, I think about this in our relationship to food all of the time. I think how like someone will make a beautiful apple pie or, or pumpkin pie. It's almost, it's almost fall. I love pumpkin pie. Uh, a pumpkin pie, and then they will take a picture of it and post it on the Facebooks or the, the Instagrams, and they will say, look what this beautiful thing I just made, fall, hashtag fall, Right? Notice, though, no one ever takes a picture of a pumpkin sitting in a field and go, look at this beautiful thing God made. Have you noticed that? Nobody takes a picture of a watermelon plant and says, isn't this incredible how our creator made this plant to use sunlight, sunlight to feed itself and grow a juicy, delicious watermelon. Instead, they take a picture and say, isn't it incredible how I made this watermelon look like a swan? Right? We forget who is actually providing for our needs, and it makes us, instead of grateful people, it makes us self-reliant and self, uh, self-righteous people. And what Jesus is trying to do is get us to understand that we all have a lack. We all have a need. None of us are fully righteous on our own. So when he says there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over a righteous per- ten, 100 righteous people who don't need to repent, I think he's using that word righteous in quotations. You might as well say self-righteous people. People who don't think that they actually have a need for forgiveness and for mercy. And Jesus is really trying to get us to change our perspective of how it is we can approach God's table and receive blessing from him. In fact, he really drives this point home in the next passage where he tells us one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible. It's the story of the lost son or the prodigal son. You ever heard that story before? And what happens is there are two sons, and they go to their rich father, and, or one of them goes to the rich father, the youngest one, and he says, hey, um, I want my inheritance now. And this wouldn't have been unheard of in the first century world. Some, some people had done this, and it was the equivalent of going to your father and saying, hey, I wish you were dead so I could have your money. So what would happen is the father would often say, yes, here's your money, but you are no longer a son of this family. They were no longer allowed to be called by the name of that family. They, they were actually cut off, Then the father would say, I now have one, one son instead of two. And so this son does this. He takes his money, he goes to a foreign land, he spends it all in reckless living. Spends it all just on terrible, sinful, empty, hollow things. And then there comes to be a famine in the land, and he's broke. And he starts starving, literally starving to death. 
And so he hires himself out to a farmer, and he starts feeding the pigs on this farm. And as he's feeding the pigs, he looks at the half-rotten, half-eaten stuff that he's feeding the pigs, and he goes, that actually looks good to me right now because I am so hungry. So he sort of comes to his senses and goes, you know what? Even the lowest of the low servants in my father's house eats better than this. So he says this in verse 18, I will sit out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against God and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Now this also, a son who had been cut off, who wanted to return, there was also a proper procedure for that. What would happen was if a son had been cut off for whatever reason, inheritance or some other reason, if he'd been cut off he would, and he wanted to return, he would come back to the town and he would have to walk through the center of town back to his father's house and everybody in that town was expected to and allowed to come to the edge of the, the road that he was walking and throw things at him and spit at him and throw rocks at him and to call him names and insults so that he would really feel the weight of the disgrace. The idea was you have disgraced your father, now you must be disgraced before you can be welcomed back in. So they have to walk this gauntlet all the way to his father's house, and then at the father's house, he would have to get down on his hands and knees and crawl into the house and crawl into the room where his father was, and not, look, not looking up at his father, all the way down to his feet and beg for mercy and beg to be received back into the family. That's how it worked if you wanted to be received back into a family after you were cut off. So that's what this son is expecting. He's going to go back. I'm going to get what I deserve, essentially. I'm going to be shown the shame and the disgrace and the contempt, and the condemnation. I'm going to be shown what it was like for my father, and I'm going to receive my just penalty for what I've done. But then verse 20, it says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This father sees his son on the edge of town and he knows what he's about to have to walk through to experience to make sure he really understands just how bad he is. And instead of having him walk through and experience this, this father runs to his son, throws his robe around his son, and walks him, escorts him back through the town, covering his shame, covering him and, and protecting him from all the derision, all the condemnation, all the insults, all the things being thrown at him, protecting him all the way to his home. And then when they get home, he says, now my son, who was dead, is alive. Let's have a feast Let's celebrate. And what Jesus is doing right here is he is showing us a perfect example of how God brings us to his table. You don't come by being good enough like the Pharisees. You don't come, you don't get to come to the table by really getting your just desserts and paying for all of your sins. Oh, finally, I paid for it all. They all yelled at me. They all threw stuff at me. Now I can do it. You come to the table by the mercy of the Father. You come to the table by the mercy of God. And this father running through the town, and by the way, in, that, in those days, old men didn't run, right? You have to hitch up your robes and run down the street. You didn't do that. 
But this man, run, this father running through the street is Jesus, sent from God not to wait for us to show up, but to come all the way to us, put his cloak of righteousness over us, and walk us through the con- condemnation, and walk us through the shame and guilt past all of those voices to a seat at his celebratory feast. This is what happens when we come to God's table and we say, I have nothing, you have everything, I have need, you have abundance, I lack, and you can supply, I am hungry, you can fill me. And we receive, uh, with the understanding that we don't deserve it, abundance. Abundance of what? Abundance of forgiveness, for starters. Abundance of forgiveness for all the things we've done. Abundance of peace, abundance of hope. Abundance of family. A family of believers. We receive abundance when we come in humility and an understanding that we are there based solely on mercy, solely on grace, and not on our own efforts or not under any illusion that we've already paid for our sins. We could never do that on our own. And so the father brings back his son and says, let's celebrate because this son of mine was dead and is alive. When you come to Jesus that way, and that humility, and that understanding, the broken and the contrite heart, when you come to Jesus in that way, he covers you with his own righteousness, and he says, let's have enormous joy. Let's celebrate. Yes, your past is your past, your failures are your past, but you were dead, and you were alive. Have you heard this one? God did not come to make bad people good. Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And if you have been resurrected by Jesus, then of course, of course there is no reason not to celebrate at the feast of God. And the, 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 trick that, the thing that Jesus is trying to get, get us to notice here about welcoming the sinner and welcoming those that don't know God and welcoming people to our table is first and foremost, you have to experience it for yourself. Your table, let's just, let's just talk about, this, let's use table as a metaphor for your social world, right? Your table will be exclusive, will be condemning, will be in a place of anxiety, will be a place of social gaming for status, until, until you truly and deeply come to God's table in humility, saying, I have nothing to offer. I deserve condemnation, but thank you, Jesus, that you cover me with your righteousness and give me a place at this table of abundance. And when you've experienced that, then your table, your social world, your your table in your life becomes a table of rest, becomes a table of welcome, becomes a table of hospitality and generosity and peace. It becomes a place where your friends, neighbors, coworkers, classmates, people you meet at the park, becomes a place where they want to come and sit. They want to come and sit and rest in this love, which is really a love that you've received from him. There's this verse in 1 John, have you guys heard this one? That we love because he first what? Loved us. We love because he first loved us. And if this is the way that Jesus brings us to his table, this story of the sun, if, if this is how Jesus brings us to his feast of abundance, then we can go, we are enabled, we are free to go and do likewise and welcome other people into the love of Christ. To eat with them, be with them, talk with them, socialize with them, feast with them, celebrate with them. 
welcome them. And our lives, our social sphere, our table, our literal dining room table become a place of healing, of hope, of possibility where people get ushered into the love of God because you yourself have been radically transformed by that love. In fact, not just radically transformed, you were dead and that love brought you to life. And that's what your life begins to preach. And we begin that process by planting ourselves firmly in the gospel of Jesus. So I know that we did communion last week, right? The crackers and the juice and stuff. I know we did that last week. We're doing it again today because the feast of our own life, right? Our, our, our table where we can welcome people into our life and eat with them and drink with them and talk to them. And when, that table begins by coming to the table of God. It begins by receiving anew each and every day the grace, the mercy, and the sacrifice of Jesus. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Apostle Paul is writing, he says, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Again, he's gathering his people around a table, and he says, listen, this is what I'm doing for you. I'm breaking my body for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Notice he says twice, in remembrance of me. He wants you to remember that the reason you can stand before God and receive blessing from him is not because you think you're already blessed like the Pharisees did, but it's because he has broken his body and poured out his blood. He wants you to remember that every day. Day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, year out. He wants you to remember that you stand at the table of God upon his broken body and his poured out blood. And then verse 26, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this, club, you pro- this cup, you proclaim what? The Lord's death until he comes. What a weird thing to proclaim, <laughs> right? What you're proclaiming is that the Lord has sacrificed for you so that you have a place at God's table. And that way of thinking begins to change your way of thinking and your table in your life becomes a place to welcome sinners and help them experience the love of God. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In fact, I would say every time we eat, here's something I also discovered this week. Why is eating such a big deal to Jesus? Because eating is one of the most humbling and human things we can do. We must eat, right? We are weak creatures who must eat. We are dependent on God's great earth to provide for us. And we, are prevent, we are dependent on God to continue providing enough for us to eat, or we will die. And when we come to the table, be that the, the, the table of communion, or we, or we come to the feast of believers, when we come to the table, we are proclaiming the fact that I am a mere human. I have limits. I can't go without food. I need God to provide. So when you come to this table, you are understanding I need God to provide for my deepest spiritual and physical needs. When you eat with other people, you together are proclaiming we need God to sustain us and it becomes a holy and sacred experience. And it all begins by proclaiming the Lord's death in your life to cover your sins, your shame, and bring you from death into life. So in a moment, I'm going to pray, and we're going to practice that. We're going to practice rooting ourselves, planting ourselves in the gospel through the practice of communion. There are four stations around the room, and uh, we're doing uh, the 
the style of communion where you take a piece of bread and you dip it in the juice and you can take it on your own. But I would encourage you not just to get up and, and go do this when we start playing music here in a minute. I would encourage you to take a moment and think about what is the posture of your heart as you approach the tables. Take a moment with the Holy Spirit. What is the posture of your heart as you approach the tables? Is this an act that you're doing so that you can be righteous enough? Or is this something you're doing in remembrance? To remember that the only way you can come to God's table is by his broken body and his poured out blood, which is broken for you and poured out for you. And when you, when you are able to come to the table in a, in a humble way, receiving, understanding that you have a hunger and God has the means to fill it, then the table will be open to you and you can come and receive the good news of Jesus. And from that little place of planting yourself afresh in the gospel, may you be able to go out this week and welcome others to your table to receive the love of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the fact that you teach us um, so much about our, our situation in life and, and what, what's really going on underneath the surface. I ask that we would let you continue to reveal stuff to us, that we would listen to your spirit, we would listen to you, and that as we go from here, we would be able to plant ourselves in your gospel and because of that fact, be able to welcome and give to the people in our lives so that they can experience your love for the first time or in a new and deeper way. We love you so much, Jesus, in your name. Amen.